0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Required Reading. Who thought so many R's would be so difficult? Required Reading. Anyway, this week we cover a dystopian American classic by Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. This is, as mentioned on the episode, an auction winner. We're a part of the Marist School in Atlanta, and we were an auction item this year. There's another auction item that will come up probably at the beginning of next season. We have one more episode this season. We're going to take the summer off, and Mike and I are going to figure out what we're going to do this summer. But in the meantime, we hope you appreciate a discussion on a classic that you may have already read. Thanks. Welcome to Required Reading. This week, we are doing Fahrenheit 451 with five we're doing Fahrenheit Take 451 three. by Ray Bradbury. That's the easiest word. Ray. I couldn't get Ray out of his mouth today. On the panel, we have my classic co-host.
1: Hey, Mike Burns. Glad to be here.
0: And we have with us a guest. Melissa Lowry. Welcome so, oh, uh, Melissa.
2: Well, thank you so much.
0: Yeah. So Melissa actually was so excited to be here, she couldn't wait. We we, we have our first auction, uh, Marist, Marist. Uh, Marist is technically, I guess, sponsoring this, at least sure. a has to yep. do it. That's where so, we are. Uh, this is our auction, our first auction person, um, and she's chosen a dystopia. What on earth could have possibly been inspired you to choose this look this year?
2: I don't know. So many things, but I just feel, well, it's one of my favorites, and I like to reread my favorite classics every few years. Sure. And I just feel like the cultural significance of Fahrenheit 451 is everywhere around us. It's just an amazing book, and it's so timely, and I believe that so many things that happen in Fahrenheit 451 can be paralleled or mirrored in what's happening in our society today.
0: And I think that's not a bad place to start. I mean, we're all in the education fields here, and this is a book about, fundamentally, the world falling apart because A, people don't read, B, they're distracted by digital devices, and C, it's the constant little interactions that, um, Break this up. Now, if I had planned anything, my phone would have gone off just now. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we can go around the table. This is a classic you've re- reread a lot. Mike,
1: have you read this before? I had not. Well, yeah, I'd read it before. Um, I don't think I've ever taught it, though, before. Um, it was on the summer reading list, and this is my son's copy. So he just was about to graduate from there. So he read it in ninth grade, I guess. Um, I read it at some point. And then, Doing AP readings and being an AP grader, I got a lot of essays on Fahrenheit 451. So even though it's been a long time since I read it, I felt like I knew it yeah. uh, well. And then reading it back over just this week for this podcast. Um, but I've never taught it in class. Have you taught it before, awesome. Are You want to tell us a little bit about your background since you're new here and just oh new, new um, to us and.
2: You know, I have not taught Fahrenheit 451. When I was teaching eighth grade English previously, we did do George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm, of course. Um, I I, I feel like had I taught in high school, it would have been more appropriate. But now that I've gone back and reread it, I do believe that if you were working with an eighth grade class that developmentally was pretty mature, this could be great material for them. I don't know if they'd be able to get to the top, top part of understanding some of the thematic material in it. But I do think that it would really speak to some of the struggles that they're having today with mental health, happiness, and how technology, social media and sort of that disconnect and that divide, how that influences them. Right. So yeah. I do think that there are a lot of parallels. And there can yeah. be some good conversations there.
1: Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm.
0: And I will say, uh, I guess, living through a pandemic, um, the thing that I had forgotten about, because you remember the fire in the books. I'd forgotten about the antidepressant angle, right? Like the woman tries to kill herself with sleeping pills, his wife. All right. And they're like, oh, no, no, this was an accident. And then they're off to another accident before they even finish the sentence. Because so many people are trying to kill themselves. It's, you know, I mean, again, this is a mental health crisis that's going on right now because of people being locked up. So it feels very prescient um, in a way. And when I was here, the young one, uh, we did Brave New World 1984 Mm -hmm. and then some other dystopias. I think I read uh, Slaughterhouse Five in that kind of chunk and maybe Fight Club. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those were the optional two. Okay. Right. But this book feels like, I, I, you know, you can smell Brave New World in this, you can smell 1984 in this, but this one seems like it's the most accurate to the future in some ways. Because like, Big Brother's a huge leap, you know, uh, Soma and all that stuff is a bit much bigger leap. This feels a little bit more grounded, and I think that's why it's intriguing to me. Well, yeah, it's
1: hard not to think when they got the seashells in their ear, or earbuds, or mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's very on the nose that way, I think.
2: One, it is interesting in dystopian novels, how the influence of drugs in some way, shape or form always there. So you take your summer vacation in Brave New World and here you have the sleeping pills or something else that people take in order to sort of get them out of the reality of their own lives. Even in a book, which you, we teach to much younger kids, The Giver, mm-hmm. I mean, you even see, a. it's not really an overt drug use there, but you see the use of drugs in many different ways, whether it's to suppress hormones or When they are going to um, send twins to else, you know, the other place or elsewhere or whatever that is, and so that is an interesting theme. I think you see throughout a lot of dystopian novels.
0: Yeah, the the idea of better living through chemistry, and you know, Mm -hmm. and it's in some ways it's interesting because there was a reaction to it in the '60s with like the LSD movement and such, but now like. You know, it seems like old 90s sitcom material to do a Prozac joke, but (laughs) everyone's on, you know, it's like the the Xanax and Lexapro that are coming out. Now, and again, you know, we've all dealt with anxiety in the past. It's better to deal with it than not. But it's just so funny to see how it's being manipulated in this world, right? Because they're glossing over it. She's clearly overdosing on sleeping pills on purpose. um, And they're telling Montauk, no, 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 it's just an accident, an accident. You don't take a whole bottle of pills by accident. Right. And the EMTs are just off to another accident, off to another accident. It's, it's it's really well constructed in that way. And the fear, I guess this is my transcendental expert, but it's the fear of deviating from nature in some ways, right? <laughs> uh, which is the whole thing of Brave New
1: World as well. Do you think in some ways that's a I I mean, this is in other dystopian novels. Do you think in some ways it's a critique of capitalism in the sense like, you consume more, like the more pills, the more happy you'll be, the more you'll be numb to that pain or something. Well, they, they be, just forget it, and then you consume more the next day. They just sort of fix you up in order to consume more. Well, they, I'm not reading that too wrong. You no, know, and they
2: reference that in the novel, and I don't have – I have a lot of things kind of outlined, mm-hmm. but they specifically talk about how because of the wealth of the United States, they don't even notice that there's a war going on, right? right? So you see there's sort of a secondary – it's not really a plot line – But something going on in the background is the bombers and all of this happening. And they basically say in the novel, like, we're so distracted by all of these things that are going on around us that we're not even thinking about the reality of how other people live. And they talk about we have so much wealth in the United States. We're so full, I think was almost the quote that we don't even see, and Montag Montag says at one point, like, that they're starving in other countries. Right. Mm -hmm. And, yes, so I do think that there's absolutely a critique on capitalism here, or at least asking the audience to take a critical look at what excess, the part that excess plays in people's lives.
0: Well, and also specifically what you are consuming, right? Yes. Because what they want to do is, like, because books allow for too much interpretation – you're supposed to watch the media that gives you the one answer, right? Yes. And, and so, like, that, that's what's interesting, right? And again, it's the sleeping pills, it's the it's the soma, right? But whatever it is, it's supposed to scratch that. It's just enough that you can go on to the next day, which is, again, it's interesting. <laughs> As someone who has trouble sleeping sometimes, <laughs> you're just like, oh, man. Um, and what's even more, I guess, interesting, if we're going to contextualize it to the modern day, there's also something about, like, fringe medicines kind of in the background too like cdB oil that will cure everything or oh, CBD, right. Oil, right like like and so now we've uh you can get it through the
1: internet right so Anyway, I guess we should kind of get into the plot. Uh, I mean, that's the great dilemma, right? We're all looking for the simple answer, whatever that is, and the one pill that solves everything or something. And that doesn't exist, but we sort of wish it would, right? Well, in
2: here, instead of, I'm sorry, instead of having people reflect on what's actually happening in their lives, that's the level of distraction that they're offering, whether it's the surround sound television systems or the fast cars that they have in it. It's so frightening. At one point, Mildred, who's Montauk's wife, says to him, because he's clearly agitated and upset as he is sort of coming to this realization that his life is sort of this hollow shell with no meaning and so on and so forth. And she says, well, take the beetle and go run over some cats and some rabbits or some dogs and some rabbits. And she doesn't even think twice about the fact that he's just going to go out and kill something. And it's just a... complete and total afterthought and it's just one more distraction at a level that's just insane to right. think that killing something is is going to distract you from how sad you or meaningless or empty your life is
0: sure right. and yeah. it's of course foreshadowing what's going to happen later as well <sighs> yeah um you know uh, or in a previous episode great gatsby it could mm-hmm. got yeah. That would be yeah interesting um, uh, <laughs> The use of car Fan as a mach- fiction,
1: right? <laughs> Put those two together
0: <laughs> The use of car ex machina in uh, 20th century American lit uh, So does anyone want to give a plot synopsis?
1: Can, Can you?
0: you? I mean In some ways it's a short book and easy In some ways it's not That's the other reason why I think,
2: I mean, I'm glad to hear, uh, and I should know this since I have a student at Marist, that they taught Fahrenheit 451 in ninth grade. Clearly, my child did not look to me for any sort of uh, help or influence, which is probably good. Yes, that is good. Do it all on your own or avoid it on your own, but at like, yeah, 180 pages or whatever it is, 160 pages, it actually is a great Mm -hmm. um, length. I think for a younger reader because it, it's something that can get done in a decent period of time, and let's face it, our uh, all of our attention spans are maybe not quite as long as they should be. So this no. is this is a good length of a book to teach, I think, at any age. Sure, totally.
0: Yeah. Um, so I mean, I can start off. Then. Yeah. Give us the summary. Right. Uh, so there's a guy named Montag. A uh, guy. Montague. Literally, guy. Yeah. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. uh, and he's a fireman, uh, and firemen in the future uh, don't put out fires, they they start fires, and particularly they're using fire to repress ideas, uh, primarily books. And um, the idea is that by repressing these ideas, we'll have a more cohesive civilization uh, by limiting thought and by limiting limiting ideas via things like television and quick bursts of information and earbuds and uh, the new Apple AirPod Pro. Um, In the meantime, he has been secretly squirreling away certain books um, that have intrigued him. Hiding them in an air vent and his boss, who's the, I guess, fire chief uh, named Beatty, Captain Beatty, yeah. Captain um, knows about this. And it's kind of one of these things, again, might be very much of 1984. Like, everyone is seduced by the other side a little bit. We just have to see, uh, you know, you have 24 hours to destroy the books, etc. In the meantime, he uh, seeks out um, a, like a professor of literature named Faber um, who is going to try to explain this to him. I should mention, though, I, I guess I kind of glossed over her at first. There's a woman in the background named Clarissa who is introducing these new ideas to him in this kind of, again, very 1984, kind of seductive way, making him look to books for answers.
2: But what's so interesting you know, is... Clarice's character is 17 years old. Right. Not even.
1: She's about to turn 17. Yes, and I
2: find it very interesting that he is gaining his perspective on the world through the eyes of a child, more or less. Totally. And that it... I don't want to say it was on accident that they met, but it was almost as if she was watching for him from the shadows, and like she almost chose him, which I felt was very, very interesting and not really touched upon when you look at analysis of the book. Like, why, why... Montauk, why him? And Mm -hmm. why did she choose him when she had a really rich life with her own family with lots of conversation? And so that, I think that's an interesting relationship for a lot of different reasons. But she ended up, I think, being the catalyst for him to begin that journey. I do find it interesting that we don't know why he started to squirrel away the books. There's never a reference to why that happens. And until that happens, you would never think he did. Like, I was actually the first time I read this book, I was like, really? He's been hiding books up in the vent because he seemed a little dimwitted up until that point and that Clarice maybe opened him to the world, but something was happening before that, and I don't know if it was the first encounter with Faber, mm-hmm. the first time he met him. I'm not sure, but I think it is very interesting that he was scrolling away those books because they never made a reference to that before.
0: You know, I, I, I was thinking about this myself, and maybe it's just that I'm talking about a book with people. Um, but to me, it almost sounds like maybe it's just you know the middle class affluenceness. But like, there are people who get books and never read them because there's something about owning things, sure. right? And so maybe it's something about the fact that he knows he's doing something he shouldn't. Well, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's you know that kid who smokes weed just to say that. Ooh, I've done something that or gets drunk at a party. There's some. There's something in there, and then someone realizes that it's good. I mean not not the drug thing but i've i've had students before that pretend to read kind of read sort of read and then all of a sudden something clicks and then it dominoes down the line and so you know maybe guy is kind of dumb and he's collecting books as a sign of rebellion and then all of a sudden the right person talks to him about the right thing like and i, I, I in some ways he's the least interesting character in his own book um because events push him mm-hmm. right like the guy I want to hear more about is Beattie, the guy who knows that people are breaking the rules. Yes,
2: and he's yes, he's so interesting and frightening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, and I, I thought, too, with Clarice, I wondered, I mean, here you have a, it, it, I mean, it's a cliche, that this young, beautiful girl is inspiring or sort of clicking something for this guy. Um, I mean, she's his muse, right? And the whole book has a riff on amusement as, as numbing in a way. So I don't know if I'm reading too much there, but no, yeah, she definitely like triggers him. Um, and you're right; we didn't, we never knew that he had been scrolling these books away, and that's that's something that's easy to gloss over.
2: Well, and then think about the books. I mean, what is the the main book when he's scrolling them away that he focuses on, and he ends up taking to Faber is the Bible. That's right. And he and he asks him on the phone like with this urgency of how many copies of the Bible are left, and and Faber at first thinks he's trying to trick him, and he's like none, and that, I think, was a real turning point for Montauk to realize he was holding on to what conceivably Possibly, could right. have been the only copy of the Bible left, in the you know at least in the United States. What's right. interesting about the book is we don't really go beyond what's happening in the United States, so we don't know whether or not this movement has taken place in other parts of the world. We, we just <laughs> don't.
1: It's true.
2: But it could conceivably be the last copy that's available anywhere, let alone... In the United States, right. and that's yeah. so interesting. Considering, isn't the Bible the most widely circulated book ever, right. or something like that? It, the it,
1: first it, book it, in print, it's, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: It's, it's
0: really up there. <laughs> it's, it's doing pretty good. You know that Harry Potter's catching up. And, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that is. It's it's actually a really good point. Um it, This is maybe just trivia. Is Huxley British or American?
1: this Huxley. Yeah. picture is British. And yeah. so is
0: Orwell, right? Right. It's very interesting that the one sci we're talking about that's written by an American is so insular. Um, right. No, I mean, but it is. It's very hyper... I don't, we don't even really get a concept of what's outside the one town. You know, I mean, we get the kind of exoverbs, you know, the... the, the jets remote.
1: flying overhead, right?
0: Right. So we know that something exists, but, you know, in, in every way, this could... The Shyamalanian twist could be that this is in a bubble, <laughs> right? Right. Um, and just as, as a side note, I
1: was going well, yeah, uh, to uh, no, was gonna say, either of you seen either of the film versions, there's a 1966 version and there's a 2018 version. I've not seen either of them, so I don't know no. what they do with those interpretations or how they
2: I have not what seen they do either. With setting. I purposely did not watch the 2018 and I have nothing against remakes, but having taught The Giver for so many years and really loving the novel on so many different levels and loving Lois Lowry and just how she speaks to kids and then watching them just massacre that book with that film, um, it it just broke my heart. And Mm. at least, like, you look at a Harry Potter series and you're like, yes, like, Mm. I loved Harry Potter. I mean, I've read every single one. And I loved those films as an adult. I love them. But I look at some films and I'm like, you just ruined this for every person we... Actually, stopped teaching The Giver at Christ the King after the film came out because we felt like they're just the connection wasn't as strong as we wanted it to be, and people were just ruining it through
1: the movie, and it just really frustrated me. Makes sense. Well, this is a, an aside, but related to the content of this um, podcast. Did you quit The Giver because students were just watching the film and not reading the book, and then there's such a discrepancy you couldn't bring them back after that?
2: That was part of it. And we saw the same thing with the movie version recently that came out of A Wrinkle in Time.
1: Okay. And,
2: you know, I go back and forth. I know this is somewhat off topic. Please. I think we need to honor good literature with film. But at the same time, I do get frustrated at some of the liberties in the filmmaking process. Where I'm like, no, what did you do? It's so
1: reductive, yeah.
2: And it's... Yes, just the reason why these books are so wonderful and, and just so inspiring is because they're written well. Mm-hmm. Why go and ruin them with a film that just doesn't do the author yeah.
1: justice or the, char-
2: or the character's justice for what they mm-hmm. deserve?
0: So I just find that to be frustrating. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. It's, and further, like, this is a 200-page book. Right? Not and, even at 168 or something. Yeah. So you can tell a story pretty pretty well, but this has a message. And message movies immediately turn me off. And when you reduce something to two hours, mm-hmm. all you can do is really focus on the message. And that, that to me, is really the problem. As opposed to, say, Hammaid's Tale, where I think the show did take some liberties, but at least it's long enough that you can do the whole book. That's true. And do it justice, Right. Um, which is what they're doing with um, uh, the dark, his dark materials, the that trilogy on um, HBO Max and stuff, and you know that that's good. Um, as opposed to what was that? They made an random uh, movie like two years ago. It's a complete disaster. But they reduced it a thousand pages to ninety minutes. You're was just it like, the
2: Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged? Atlas or? Shrugged. I oh, think. I didn't even know they made a film.
0: Oh, it was funded by God, someone at at Fox actually. But like they tried to make it, and it literally like all the reviews were that like they couldn't get even a third of the book in because they right. reduced a thousand pages to ninety minutes.
2: But you could take something like the Fountainhead and actually make that a series, that's and work would that's just be it's... like you'd be so incredibly interesting to watch over the course of right. how that book. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, exactly, and and when you do, that's why short stories make better movies because they're concise they're precise
2: case in point the Shawshank Redemption Mm -hmm. I mean I don't think anyone would know that Stephen King wrote that that was Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption and by far one of my favorite films of all time but the short story you think to yourself really Mm -hmm. like that that's the same guy who wrote The Shining, yeah, um, or The Green Mile, for that matter. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read The Green Mile, but that was actually a series of novellas that he put out that mm-hmm. were all under hundred pages, right. and they came out like staggered, and you wanted to read them and wanted to read them. And then to make that movie was actually really, really well done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely, one of, that was one of the good ones.
1: Yeah, there are a few. Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. So right? that's a
2: whole other podcast.
0: <laughs> page um, to stage, so yeah. We can talk a little bit just about the world that this book came out of just you know briefly because this is a very tight-knit community at the time. 1953?
1: Mm-hmm. Are you talking oh, about yeah, yeah, the that's, world that's of I mean. the book itself? Yeah. No,
0: no, the, the, when it was published. Right. Uh-huh. Um, so we've got this in the 53 and we'll talk about like that it was coming out against the uh, McCarthy era but he's buddies with people like Gene Roddenberry, who creates Star Trek um, and so and uh, Asimov and Clark you know it's a pretty tight little community there and so to me it's kind of interesting that how the fears are different because this is a fear that no one's going to read.
1: Uh, now we live in a world although the what's percolating more... in the background is the nuclear war, I mean, oh, of yes. course, which is right. very much on the, the minds in the 50s. That's right, some yeah. foreshadowing,
2: too, right there. <laughs> Pat Frank that happens in the book,
0: you know. Right. Um, as opposed to say, which I think Roddenberry got right, which is that we now have information everywhere, people just don't care, right? And, you know, like, I, I really could I mean, this book is still under copyright, but like. I could crack open any number of public domain books. I could read them out. The whole podcast could be me reading Dickens or whatever. Yeah, Dickens, Charles Dickens. Um, Probably Emily too. uh, uh, Any any number of Dickens, (laughs) but people don't care, right? And so, what's interesting here is the repression of information seems to drive people to want it more. Right, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess means we should get into Guy Montag's actual donation. Does it? I'm
1: going to challenge you on that. Oh, please! Because go on. Uh, Mildred certainly doesn't care, right? I mean, we don't get a whole scope of the universe in this. We know Guy mm-hmm. and Mildred. She's numbing herself. We have Clarice next door who gets killed. She's curious. And we don't know about Beatty, Yeah,
0: Beatty baby. Well, I guess we should say that there aren't many characters
1: in this book either. <laughs> but
0: why does Mildred try to kill herself? Do, you, do we have a feeling for that? I know he interrupts a, garden par- or a dinner party, which, I mean, we all want to die when someone ruins a dinner party. But, like, did you get a feeling for that?
2: I just thought, found it interesting that it, very early in the novel, Guy says to her, how did we meet Right, And they've been married for approximately 10 years because he has that conversation with Clarice about having been with his wife for that long when they had the dandelion scene where she kind of gets it on his nose. And if he gets it on his nose or whatever it is, he's in love and he doesn't. And he's so frustrated that he's kind of failed this test, I believe, in her eyes. And that's something that goes, wow, he, he goes... I think that makes him start to think, maybe I'm not in love with my wife. So he asks Mildred, like, where did we meet? And she can't even remember. Sure. Which led me to believe that it's not just sleeping pills. Because then he physically describes her as being, like, rail thin and brittle in the hair. And I'm just thinking meth addict. Like, (laughs) like 110% that she's totally out of it. And then they reference in their bedroom that they're not in the same bed. Sure. Like, that's always... I, I don't know. There's a lot going on with huge disconnects in that marriage, which I find so interesting oh. that here they are married. He says to Clarice she never wanted children. Like, there are so many disconnects mm-hmm. that it leads me to believe that maybe she was pretty damaged from, from the get-go, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But it it might have to do with the fact that they don't talk. He goes to work at night. She's going to sleep with the seashells. Like, there's a huge disconnect in their relationship To the point where, you know, she's the one who sells them out.
1: Right. And her only family is her parlor family that she, you know, interacts with on screens there. Well, and that's
2: a whole, I mean, you know, can we just talk about like keeping up with the Kardashians type of media? And it's like that, that's what we've come to in our society where through social media, through reality television, people now think they're actually friends Mm -hmm. with celebrities or people on television And somehow they have this extended relationship with these people when that's an absolutely one-sided thing. Right. And it's so interesting how with those screens, they kind of build her name into the script and there's like a pause where they almost like bleep in her name Mm -hmm. to make her feel connected to them. And all I see is this flash of social media and Mm -hmm. this, I feel like I'm interacting with someone when... It just could be their publicist who's posting that, or some assistant somewhere, and you're not really interacting right. with just that person. Right, just because you're tweeting
1: and to somebody doesn't mean they're reading it or they You don't necessarily have a relationship
2: with them. Yeah. And it, that parallel is so fascinating, yet so frightening, that it was written so long ago, yet is so applicable to the world today. Sure.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's that real futurist stuff that makes this book feel very prescient.
2: And more so than I just say that we've we've touched on nineteen eighty four, which I think still has. Um, I mean, you can still talk about I think its importance as a literary piece, and then you can still apply some of what happens in it to what's happening in the world today. But I definitely think Fahrenheit four fifty one of those that genre of dystopian novels really touches home more than I think, any other. I mean, Brave New World is great. I mm-hmm. think... I don't know. Is it, is it dystopian Catch-22? I can't even remember. It's been so long since I've read that. I mean, that's still applicable, but I,
1: mm-hmm. I can't really... I, I just watched the Catch-22 on Hulu. Yeah. It, it's like a six-part series. It's amazing. It's really good. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's dystopian, but sort of nihilistic. or okay. I mean, it's, it's all been yeah. put in the same category. Right, like, but I'm, I'm not sure is. the connection. It, it's It's got a darker humor side, and I don't think this has much humor or 1984 humor. or brave new world. Yeah. Yeah. He
0: felt, it feels like he wrote this with a, like, I don't know what pissed him off, but it felt like something really set him off. Right. Yeah.
1: So you wonder. I mean, I have the annotated or 50th, 60th anniversary edition. And yeah. he talks about, um, maybe in one of the back, one of his original or 1976, uh, introduction, how he would, um, he was he was like dirt poor and he would go to the los angeles museum and like rented a typewriter for 10 cents yes uh, you know every 30 minutes and just sat down there and banged it out sure and, and it, it
2: started was, as a short story as well i think uh, yeah, called right. the fireman right. it was the yeah. original and then he decided to extend it i wonder what set him off for that
1: yeah i
0: mean <laughs> no it's just it's It's so interesting because obviously there are still writers and short story writers, but like in this era, like he put out like 600 short stories, you know, like L. Ron Hubbard put out a thousand and you're just talking about people who weren't right all the time. I mean, must have been whatever they were on. Did
2: Bradbury write um, All Summer in a Day, which basically we always cover in like sixth grade and it's future. I I think, I don't know, we could look it up. I think All Summer in a Day is Ray Bradbury and it's, it's about people living on Mars in the future. And kind of what happens in one day, which when you go to Mars, or I, I think it's Mars, it rains all day, every day, like crashing thunder. And then they have like two hours of sunlight. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a searing-like commentary on the treatment of people because it's children and the way they treat this one child. It's a very interesting short story. So he, Ray Bradbury had a lot going on upstairs. Oh, yeah. so that's sure. all I've got to say is i would when well, he was living in venice beach i'm from southern california anybody sure. living in venice beach in the 1950s i i can only tell you that i know what it's like now having grown up there <laughs> right. I, and i grew up there in the 70s i can only tell you what it would have been like in the 50s
0: sure yeah no that sounds like a like rod sterling like twilight zone <laughs> kind of short story doesn't it?
2: it it absolutely is in fact you read it in the same um breath that you read um it is Rod Sterling and it's the one about the Martians and now I can't something on Maple Street
0: the one we should yeah something on Maple Street yes yeah.
2: oh my gosh and he, that was a play by Rod Sterling mm-hmm. or, or a script for a short story for um was it for the well it was like a radio play
0: that he published as a play and then he turned into a teleplay for the Twilight Zone for the Twilight
2: Zone we one did that f- in Amex
1: and yeah we watched that last, two weeks ago oh, yeah. Yeah.
2: one of my favorite I love the Twilight Zone yeah. oh my
1: gosh That was a fun one the
2: pig faces it's just the best <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah when, when that's we, another podcast yeah we did uh when we got to the it was funny because you know I, i've seen it before i i, I convinced mike that like we, we had a list of episodes i let him pick which one and we put it on and i right near the end i walked to the front of the classroom so i could see the expressions when the twist happen and they were all it was good it works it's funny how this stuff still works you know 80 years later or whatever uh 70 years later right I so
1: well, let's jump to that then as far as what makes this what did Bradbury get right about people? Like, why do we want to be numbed by that? Why do we want to control others' thoughts? Um, thinking from the fireman point of view. sure. why do we project this on um, authority as always being um, exploitative and reductive and, and, and getting rid of individualism? Is that, is that a uniquely American thing? Well, I mean, the
0: fear of losing individualism is clearly an American thing, right? Because we often not only think of ourselves as individuals, but we think of America as the an experiment, like something that makes us unique in the world as a city on the hill, uh, you know, every, you know, every, highlight everything we've taught in the class for last year. Right. But, but further, um, I don't know if it's, I mean, I guess you mentioned this earlier, this comes out of the McCarthy hearings where uh, Senator McCarthy is, you know, pointing out people who are different and it didn't matter if you were, you know, gay, didn't matter if you were communist, didn't matter if you were for civil rights, that you could end up in front of that tribunal. And so the idea of reading something that would be mildly controversial would be that kind of thing. So, I mean, in some ways you can almost look at this as an indictment of a required curriculum. Um, The idea that someone would not read something outside of themselves is,
1: right right you know
0: but i think
2: something about the book that again it makes it very applicable today but it's somewhat frightening is the fact that in this book it's it's not the government that starts the movement it's people that start the movement and that's something that when we look at what's happening i think in politics and culture today what happens in this book no matter what this side of the aisle political aisle you are it, it's very applicable here to what we're seeing, and I'm just gonna read something here. It says, so it's set up where BD is starting to talk and he's starting to go into this sort of monologue about right. why society has gotten to the point. We get the whole backstory. Yeah, yeah. the backstory, but he says, he says, um, and I'm reading directly, colored people don't like Little Black Sambo, burn it. White people don't feel good about Uncle Tom's cabin, burn it. Mm-hmm. Someone's written a book on tobacco and cancer of the lungs. The cigarette people are weeping. Burn the book. What? Serenity, Montag. Peace, Montag. Take your fight outside. Better yet, into the incinerator. And that it that's just one small piece of a couple of monologues that he has throughout where he talks about how when people become so divided to the point where they can't see anybody else's point of view they're saying to get rid of it and I just it does ring which a little bit. which is the bit, easiest
1: thing to do right when it
2: rings a little bit of that it, it's now becoming a cliche that that phrase cancel culture of I'm not agreeing with you so I just want to cancel everything and I know I'm simplifying it I understand that but there are some points here where I think oh my gosh I mean where he was is exactly where we are in some ways today, and that does make me a little bit nervous. I, it is uncomfortable to read things that I disagree with and to listen to people's opinions that I don't agree with. and i and I get frustrated right. and upset, but without listening to somebody else's side, we can never understand the point of view of of, of somebody else and where they're coming from. and then you lack that empathy and that compassion, Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're driving a beetle around killing animals. Or with Clarice, when she's killed, supposedly it's a speeding car full of teenagers. And they talk about teenagers murdering one another in this book as if it's sort of like going to the movies. Mm -hmm. And it's that sort of lack of understanding of other people and where they come from that I see is such a huge parallel in this book even as much as the televisions and sort of the social media connection and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I'd highlighted that same passage, Lisa, and the same thing comes to mind as you're saying there. And I'd forgotten that part of the book. Um, And so I wonder, just again, thinking in sort of pedagogy, is our job as teachers to make students a little uncomfortable to, to present them with these things to challenge them in that way? Is that what good education does
2: gosh I hope so
1: yeah Um, I I believe that too personally
2: well and I've had these conversations you know with other educators about what what our role is especially during this sort of tumultuous time culturally for us in the United States and I still think it's very important that we are as educators creating spaces for our students where they learn to think they do not learn what to think right and I think we have blurred the lines in education far too much into putting our own personal opinions into things when that's, that's not our job. My job is to present the world to you. And I've really enjoyed watching your class from the outside with, with my daughter in it. To say we're going to present a whole bunch of things to you and then you decide how you feel about them and we're going to guide you and influence you with different pieces of literature or news or whatever it is but we still want you to come to your own conclusions and then to be able to defend them and support them but we're not going to judge them and it bothers me that i hear from so many students of mine of various places in all different schools like I don't, feel, I don't feel okay sharing my opinion on politics. I don't feel okay sharing my opinion on something for fear of being judged or the teacher not giving me a good grade or the teacher saying I'm wrong. And yes, there are facts. You know, two plus two is, is four. Last time I checked. Mm-hmm. But when we're trying to grow minds of our students in upper middle school and high school in particular, we want them to be open, or I want my students to be open to everybody's opinion. That doesn't mean they agree with it. That doesn't mean they subscribe to it, right. but they certainly entertain it and consider it and they're thoughtful about it and not dismissive. And I see in this novel just so much of that one type of thinking, and I think I, I don't want our world to
0: be that place.
1: Right. No, I agree. And it's, historically, actually is coming out of the, you know, the McCarthy era, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, it was good also further say, like, it's something that you and I struggle with, which is that the kids want there to be a correct answer.
2: Yes. Not
0: necessarily like to interpret. Yeah. To great, get yeah. Right. I mean, and hell, I just went through AP exam, so I know where to talk, but that that's kind of the, the fundamental flaw. Like the problem with reading a bunch of books is that you develop a complex opinion too. Right. And that's something that they get into there. Even if, you know, guy came away agreeing with what the government had to say, but he had a more nuanced view on it. That, that also seems wrong in this world. Right. right? Um, you know, and, and so, therefore, it's interesting that the books that he collects, I mean, Ray Bradbury dealing with the, uh, I guess, I, I don't know what his thought process was at any point, but it's very interesting that he chooses the Bible, uh, if only that. We've talked about those kind of anti-commun- or anti-capitalist or anti themes in here, but it being the Bible, you know, the godless commies, right? So the fact that the communists are trying to repress the Bible would make sense in that world, Um but of course not here. I don't know, that's the only part that seemed interesting to me. It would have been funny if it was
1: like the constitution right? That seems very apropos or, or something like that. Well, I love it just going back to just the line where Ben Franklin is the original fireman, right? Yes, and he comes I up was with like, the rules. oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> and it's such a Ben Franklin, like he very, you know, you know, sort of rationally lists the rules, one, two, three, four, this is what you do.
2: And doesn't that harken back to um, Animal Farm, where they're slowly changing what history is right, by yeah, changing what's on the wall, and yeah. it's like,
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, that's not totally true. And <laughs> someone's like, isn't that not really, and then it was like, no, that's what it always <laughs> Gaslighting,
1: like, right? Yeah, if you yeah. say Ben
2: Franklin was the original fireman enough times, somebody, to would, everyone's going, right? everyone's going to believe and it. That's the
1: danger. Well, and again,
0: it's kind of true because he started the first fire department in Philadelphia, but they put out fires, yes. right? Like, and that, that's the part that I really I, that always tickled me. Like, uh, it's it seems like an Amelia Bedelia joke, mm-hmm. like a firefighter puts out the fire, right? Well,
2: and the fact that people actually were laughing, thinking that that was funny that firefighters would have ever. Put out a fire; hence the name firefighter. Mm-hmm. But whatever. I mean, yeah,
1: right, yeah, that's right. It's a great little pun on language. Well, yeah. and of course, he then becomes a
0: firefighter using the flamethrower on the dog. And on yeah Beatty. I'm Beatty. I'm Beatty. Um, yes we well let's
2: something. bring up the dog though let's I know we were, what's funny is I know we were totally talking about the plot and we've sure. only gone like a third of the way through the
1: plot <laughs> welcome to our podcast yeah. Yeah. So I did I, listened,
2: I did listen because The Great Gatsby is one of my all time favorite novels as well yeah. and I've taught that and enjoyed it and I, I loved listening to that podcast but oh, I good. did I did feel like I could get along here because I was like okay they're all in the place but you get back to the dog and I was like first of all I was like minority report if you ever sure. saw that Absolutely. Tom Cruise, where they had the little things that came out and they were finding everyone, but but the dog was crazy, and not because it was the dog itself or it was a mechanical dog, which I thought was so interesting because unlike The Giver, where there's an absence of animals altogether, sure. right? Like they have the elephant, and and he's like, this used to exist. It's a stuffed animal, and the, the little girl's like, there's no way there's ever been right. that animal. Um, To this, where you hear the birds, and there's there are clearly because at one point they talk about a real dog coming yeah. up to the window. So there are animals here, but they have this mechanical dog that obviously goes out and kills people. But what's interesting more to me is the chase that takes place. And it it, it took me back to whether it was the OJ chase sure. or any of those car chases where the media all become so obsessed with the story that no one's really checking the facts. And sure. I think we actually have seen this runaway train in news today. Is it news or is it commentary? Are right. they or pundits entertainment. Or, re- or reporters? Yeah. It's all sort of convoluted. But in this case, I mean, the dog, the dog, this mechanical dog goes after him. And when he evades the dog, they kill some poor guy right. who's That's just right. walking they down just the street. Yeah. And then they blame him. That's right. He was alone. Why would someone want to be alone? Why would someone want to walk down the street? He kind of deserved to die for that reason. And I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly what the narrative we will often see on television is, we are going to frame this situation and make this narrative fit with what it is that we want. In
1: very clear, simple ways that appeal to us. Well, and then
2: there's no context. I mean, we all, everyone sees the video today of everything right nobody has context
1: right that's right
2: and that too is another parallel where i was like oh my gosh i'm just seeing so much of what's happening in today's society right here just in this this chase
1: mm-hmm. and it relates to books we've talked about too in the same way they're just going to frame some guy to get it over with like just mercy and beale street I mean, oh, yes. same sort of things that um yeah, we want a, a clear ending, we want a clear villain, and we just want to move on to the next next show. I think it's
2: an interesting parallel with Just Mercy. I mean, after reading that book, because I picked it up from the Marist summer reading list, I mean, I, yeah, I just walked away from that somewhat down, dumbfounded at mm-hmm. that man's experience and what had happened. And that's an interesting parallel, but I think it's I think it's spot on.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, again, something about human nature that well, and I mean, wants that this media culture. that. Mm-hmm. They
0: want to create the narrative, right? They want to follow the timeline, and and so it feels like an episode of a TV show. So of course it's going to end with closure, and then we cut to commercial, right? right. And that's that's what happens the next time. That's what happens the next time. That's exactly right. Yeah, and the OJ
1: chase. It's hard not to think of that when <sighs> when they're televising. I, the, uh, yeah.
0: I was stuck behind a white Bronco at the Chick Fil A line, and it was a new one. It was twenty twenty one. I was just like. So at the Let's Ford. Make these, oh, you
1: sent a picture of that.
0: Yeah, uh, the, <laughs> the chairman of the board said, "No, it's got to be in white. It's the classic color." And you're just like, "Why would you, you?"
2: So two interesting facts. Having grown up in California, number one, I owned a white
0: there you go. Ford
2: Bronco Excellent. in 1997-ish. Uh huh. And then I worked in advertising before I became a teacher, and the advertising agency that I worked at was on the corner of Uh, Wilshire Boulevard and Barrington and Nicole Brown Smith's condo was on Barrington less maybe a third quarter of a mile from where I worked and what was so frightening is we would come out so this was about 1996 or so and we would come out and there would be tour buses That would come down and maybe it was, was it Wilshire? It was either Wilshire and Barrington or Santa Monica and Barrington and they would turn up the street and we would just kind of stand there like, really? Wow. And that was only, what, a year after we got the verdict because it was a verdict 95-ish? Something like that. Yes. So this was like, it wasn't even over
0: yet. And
2: it was, I mean, for a long time, they ended up destroying that complex. But for the longest time, you could walk up the street and actually look into where it had happened and it was just oh, awful. Creepy. yeah it yeah. was really yes yes it was really but that OJ I mean that was right up front and center because that was right when I graduated college first job and I was in Los Angeles when that whole thing happened and it oh, was wow. so surreal and it really is just very similar to what, yeah. what we're seeing in this book
0: yeah, yeah. totally yeah and again that, that's almost the story you want like how they break down the dead guy <laughs> um yeah but yeah, I mean, that's cutting anyone off. We've been talking a while. I want to make sure that we're touching on the stuff that we need to talk about. Is there anything, Mike, that comes up? Uh, I mean,
1: I, I think Melissa nailed it with the one quote about the reluctance to face difficulties or nuances in books or issues or, or people's perspectives. Um, I think it's interesting, too. I, I wonder what you guys think about um, when um, Montague interrupts his wife's parlor party to read poetry (laughs) poetry, and he reads dover beach yes and the last line of that was where uh, ignorant armies clash by night Mm -hmm. um so i don't know i just wondered your thoughts on that what of all the pieces why do you think he's teasing out matthew arnold and dover beach or um i just thought that was did we ever teach Matthew arnold no, I mean he's a Brit. So, oh no, no, I mean yeah. he's. A Br- I
0: know he's British, but I don't know if they end up reading him. In he's one of the Rover One guys, right?
1: No, 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 no. no. Um, I know that like Sandy Almond used to teach him um, back when you were a student here, Nick. I'm not sure what Britlett does well, now. I mean I was he's a say, pretty, that's
0: why it sounded familiar. Yeah. I may have read some of he's him a at pretty, one point. I mean,
1: Dover Beach is one you should hit in Britlet, I would think. But he's up.
0: He's a. Is he Tennyson? Or is that after? Like, I'm trying to place him. He's 19th century, I would guess, right?
1: Um, yeah. I, I'm, I should know more, but I've not taught Brit Lit for a long time, so. Um, I just
0: imagine really good facial hair. That's <laughs> 19th century English. And right? a tweed jacket. That's right, exactly. But no, it's... it. And the idea that the poem brings people to tears immediately... Uh, and then
1: horrifies everyone else as the dinner party breaks up to report it. Right, so why yeah. is her her friend in tears? Is she so moved by the poetry, so shocked by it? Is it awakening something in her? What What do you think is happening in that scene, I'm trying to find the page?
2: When we think about the women too and their the pathetic nature of their lives and how they kind of, uh, Montauk talks over what happens, like your children hate you, the one husband, I think, killed himself. The other one was killed in war. And I think for the one woman, it's a combination of finally recognizing, like some of the proverbial slap across the face, Mm -hmm. of waking up and realizing the pathetic nature of her life. And then at the same time, feeling a very kind of organic, visceral, having that kind of organic connection, yet visceral reaction, to a piece of literature that one has not really heard before but somehow touches them right that's sort of what i saw that. i
1: don't know i don't yeah. know i don't know and she's just sobbing i don't know i don't know yeah it's yes it's, it's, yeah it touch something awakened her
2: well and think about it i mean people haven't changed all that much in the future in this novel he still takes the subway he's walking down the street they're not driving around in cars that fly like there there are so many things that are still similar True, right. in people and so I don't know that people's minds have changed all that much. And we all know that when we're exposed to something that speaks to us, if it's a piece of music, mm-hmm. if it is a book, there is a very emotional kind of visceral reaction to yep. that. And we may not even know why we're having a reaction to something. It might be buried in the subconscious, yeah. so on and so forth. And that might but been this woman's breaking point, just like Montag had his breaking point with what happened with kind of first the eye-opening experiences with Clarice, but then really her death, mm-hmm. which is sort of the catalyst for that change where he just kind of wakes up.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me in some ways of, um, I went to the, I think it was Museum of Modern Art, and just would see people staring at a Rothko. And Rothko, I love Rothko, but it's rectangles. Mm-hmm. And there were people having an emotional experience, but sometimes it's, what, whatever gets you in art, it doesn't matter, but it's right. just sometimes, because I have the poem in front of me, and. If you wanted to quote it good but it's it's not a you know it's it's a very good simple poem but sometimes it's it's like you said it's just that little bit of art that people haven't touched in so
1: long well Um, the
2: humanity of the art that's the other thing is how we create art whether it's you know a a piece that you draw or paint or something that you write Mm -hmm. that is an emotional that's an emotional feat in and of itself that creation and so someone's reaction is going to have to be like that
1: right
0: and then that's kind of what you were referring to earlier with keeping up with the kardashians right because it is not a an intimate piece of art that is being created right like and, and, and therefore when someone's actually exposed to something artistic it's it's changing it's transformative right and you know I, I won't sp- speak ill of any of our students or anyone, but like sometimes when we do a, a piece of work, a painting, it's one of those things that you can tell that they're really clicking because they have not looked at something like that before. Right. Mm-hmm. Or music or song or even film, like there's cinema that we've
1: tried to incorporate that is designed to challenge them. And some
0: have not been challenged that way before.
1: And you might not get it all. There's a great line, one of my favorite from Walt Whitman, that my words itch at your ears. Yeah. So the idea, like, you know, something that it just, like, it, it causes a reaction, like a scratch that you have to scratch, and then you're, why am I doing this? And mm-hmm. then it just sort of, you ruminate on it over time. Yeah. Um, and so the, the more you spend, and there's a great quote in this annotated edition where Harold Bloom is writing about it. And oh, of course. It out there. So just on the idea of memory, so I'm just going to read this Bloom quote because I obviously can't outdo Harold Bloom. Um, Reading Fahrenheit 451 after many years, uh, I forgive the novel its stereotypes and its simplifications because of its prophetic hope that memory and memorization is the answer When I teach Shakespeare or American poetry, I urge my students to read and reread Macbeth and Song of Myself over and over again, until these essential works are committed to memory. Myself, I have eaten the books to employ a Talmudic trope, and I repeat poems and plays to myself for part of each day. Bradbury, half a century ago, had the foresight to see that the age of the screen movie, TV, computer could destroy reading. If you cannot read Shakespeare and his peers, then you will forfeit memory. And if you cannot remember, then you will not be able to think.
2: Yeah. Well, good literature challenges you.
1: Yeah. Um, and it just makes me think like we should make kids memorize poems again. Yeah. Um, or.
2: Well, there's or, something to be said some, for some of the old-time teaching that we've tried to move beyond. Mm-hmm. I was trying to explain to someone the other day that um, cahoots aren't studying.
1: No. No, so right.
2: Cahoots are fun. I mean, I like them. But they're not studying. Right. That's not, it's a passive form of taking in information. It's not an active form of actually engaging in something. And you talk to people probably, I think you're... I don't know if you're... I'm I'm 48. I'll just put it out there.
1: 50. There
2: you go. Okay. You're a little younger. He's younger. (laughs) 35. 35. But um, but you're still on the cusp of not really being a digital native where you kind of grew up in an age where it wasn't all around you. But I talk to people in our age group, how did you study for tests? Well, we rewrote our notes.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean... you said them out loud and you're walking around the room. And our
2: our kids don't write things anymore. Like I've talked with many of my students or students I tutor and I I say, well, how is it that you're studying? They're like, well, I review the Kahoot. or the teacher put a study guide online. I'm like, okay, hey, you're not actively engaged in that process. It's so funny you
1: say that because just this week, Nick and I, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, we went to old school, like pen and paper. Like everyone's back in class now, and like we actually handed out things and we gave a real. They wrote answers on a paper today rather than typing them. Or they were terrified. They were terrified. <laughs> 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 who we scarred them? Yeah. The right. Horror. But
2: <laughs> what's funny is I think you get some students who engage in that and then reflect on it and realize that they actually are acquiring the knowledge mm-hmm. in a better way. And you talk about memorization. And I think memorization actually gets a bad rap. So because we think about, at least I went to Catholic school growing up, and you think about the rows and the nuns and the, all of that sort of stuff and how it was kill and drill and the memorization there's something to be said for memorization and what it does to make the brain exercise itself as a muscle. And I, I agree with
1: you. Yeah. I mean, in a world where information is so readily available, it becomes devalued, right? Uh-huh. Something is plentiful. And so it does. Um, you don't, uh-huh. you don't think of it that way. That's right. Um, and I think memorizing it is, is taking some ownership of that uh-huh. as happens with the wandering tribe at the end there. Um, yeah. But I thought that, that, Bloom quote was just too good not to share. It
2: was excellent.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I mean, we
1: can, that,
0: that, that boxcar scene of old English teachers. I mean, I don't know how you and John McGraw hang out. (laughs) I imagine it's something similar to that, (laughs) but like it's, you're in charge of memorizing Ecclesiastes. Was he Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, how poignant is that? I mean, and then I think when they talked about Bradbury, Somewhat positive, prophetic, or kind of looking toward the future. I mean, you think that there is a season for everything, and then what happens at the end of the novel? Do we do the spoilers or not? Whatever, whatever Ooh, happens at the yeah. end of the novel, where it's we no feel surprise. there's complete destruction. Right. Yeah, I believe that putting Ecclesiastes in there is that that very glimmer of hope for mm-hmm. everything. There is a season, mm-hmm. and I felt like I left the book thinking, "Gosh, okay." So traditionally, are these going to be the physically strongest? men and women that are carrying this on. No, but they are armed with something so much more powerful, which is knowledge. And so I think the two things combined Ecclesiastes kind of, and the people who have now been tasked with pushing civilization to the next, because at least the one city is destroyed or whatever. And they said, they're going to rebuild civilization. He so picked that for a reason to everything there is a season there's a time and place and i think it was like they're almost their calling card their charge like it's now our time and place Mm -hmm. to move forward to have a new civilization Mm -hmm. and we know that Faber, or we think he may have lived because he remember he was getting on the train or whatever to go to st louis right so he may have already been out of the city by the time that this happened and so again we leave that cliffhanger of like did he get out and will he be able to help them with that movement? And yeah. I, I felt I actually leave the novel feeling more heartened than disheartened myself. But
1: Yeah. I, I agree. Rereading at this time I remembered it bleaker and then it's a more sort of open ended or possibly optimistic ending. Um, or at least that chance for renewal and the sure. whole phoenix yeah. rising from the ashes kind of idea.
2: Yeah, it's not happy but by I any means, no, but no, I did no, have no. that glimmer. I felt it's like the Ecclesiastes not... was the little glimmer of hope that mm-hmm. lighted the possible light at the end totally of the
1: tunnel. A fair read, yeah. Well, and I also read this
0: in, in, I guess, The Gaze of American Experiment and whatever, in that how American this book feels. <laughs> because, and it's the things we talked about, but also like, if you were in Southern France, you couldn't do this because you walk around, and you see the past, right? Mm-hmm. Here, like we're downtown Atlanta, this building is eight years old, right? Like the oldest building you'll find is 150 years old. Like there isn't that breadth of past and we love the new and the modern and everything like that. But if you're in say London, one of the things Orwell has to deal with is um, how do we rewrite history? Here we can just forget history. We don't we don't care Start about it. Start all history, over. Right. right. Why yeah, not? Yeah,
1: that's the great American story. Yeah.
0: Um, and so the idea of memorization to me feels very Talmudic, right? Like the idea of oral tradition. And so we should teach not only our, our, our novels, but you know, Johnny Appleseed and our great American oral, you know, heroes, right? Because there, there's also something in that which is I find fascinating. Um because there is this desire to just consume. You know, I could just sit on Libby all day listening to audiobooks at three times the speed and not absorb a damn
1: thing. But th- think you're doing something. <laughs> think th- think, th- you're, think doing you're being something. productive like a Cahoot or something. Well, you yeah. can be busy. Yeah, right. That does
2: not mean that you are productive. Right. And that seems to be an overarching theme here: is let's keep everybody so busy where they don't actually notice what's happening. And you see that that in Brave New World as well. Sure. We are going to distract our population to the point where they just don't even care about right. what's happening anymore. And again. Can't we see the parallels in today's yes. society? Let's distract people enough where we can then change what's happening before people even see it.
0: And multiple screens. That, that's yes. the other thing. Like the idea that there's the TV here, here, and here. Well, that's silly. There's a TV here, my phone is here. Like that's the... And
2: then my computer is sitting right next to me. <laughs> or sometimes I've been bad enough where the television's on, I'm not really watching it. I have two laptops in front of me because yeah. I have one open for work. And one open because, you know, I'm online shopping, of course. Sure. And then my <laughs> phone is sitting next to me. And then I have to sit and look at myself and go, really? This is this is yeah, where we are? And right. I've got to shut it all off and walk away. Right. But, but yes, it's just a different form of having all of those pieces of technology yeah. around you.
0: Well, and I mean, I guess we bring it back only because the EMTs are there to make sure that it keeps happening. Right. right. Like the keep system is designed to keep, keep us going. Yeah, she didn't even
2: get going. a business card for rehab. That's right. Like, there was just absolutely nothing. It was right. just, and they're just like, well, you know, you want to kind of make sure she eats in the morning. She's right. going to be pretty hungry.
0: That's right. I mean, the only difference is if it was written today, the next thing on would have been an infomercial for a rehab clinic. Right? Like, right. And it would have been a celebrity spokeswoman
1: or a spokesman. It would have and like, been completely integrated. So, it's an, exactly. um, one corporation will it'll give you the pill that gets you sick and then save you and bring you back. <laughs> one pill makes you larger. One
0: pill, <laughs> so go full Jefferson Airplane <laughs> <client> up there. <laughs>
1: Um, but, yeah, I,
2: I, I, I'm i exhausted. <laughs> I know. I mean, it, it could be several podcasts. That's, well,
1: what, what else you got, Melissa? Yeah, what, what else do you want to talk about? And, well, is, I mean,
2: I do like the ending. So we talk about Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes at the ending, but then there's also the Book of Revelation. Sure. And so they bring that in as well. And so I, there's got to be, you know, a symbolism and a significance to... Revelation being the last, so they talk about the importance of the Bible, and then they bring in the last book of the Bible, where we really talk about destruction and things of that nature, but then the potential for new life, and it says, and on either side of the river was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's good. I mean, that's truly almost the ending right there, and that's, I think, the jumping off point. Of when he ends, and he doesn't say it. The it's kind of what limited omniscient point of view is Mm -hmm. when we reach the city. So yes, at that point, it's in Montag's point of view, and he's kind of taking what's happened in the book and kind of pushing out what might happen, and that's where I kind of start to feel that okay. Maybe something can come of this. He's woken up enough. He's met people that are like-minded. They're memorizing these books. They're organized in who's going to do what. We think Faber might have gotten out of town. And they might actually be able to move forward from this.
0: That's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm glad you lightened the mood. (laughs) No, it's it's funny because when you get too into these, you know, this era of sci-fi fantasy and it starts to feel really prescient, it is kind of depressing but I mean there is optimism we're we're not this far gone so yeah I feel I do feel better now I well, really I mean I know that sounds so like I'm that I did that for you <laughs> I do and I realize how sarcastic that sounds but you know I read a bunch of similar books around the same time and it does get kind of muddly, right it's it's kind of like you know not not is civilization uh, like salvageable but at what point does it is a good writing that's supposed to make us feel like we, like this world is possible and how far we're gone. And there's always that think piece about this generation, blah, this generation, blah. You know, I'm, I'm a millennial with two Gen Xers. Uh, and so it, it's just different perspectives in some way. But the problem with the kids is they can't choose the generation they come up in. So how do we prepare them for a world that we will not have lived in, that we can't predict, but still allows them cognitive thought. And that's where this book feels like it's really touching me, right? Like how do I get them to be critical in a way that, because now, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, it's all commentary. Everything is commentary, right? Even the YouTube that they watch is about video games that they haven't played yet to give them an opinion before they play the video games. right? So at what point do I just say, go outside, play your own game, watch your own movie, and then see what other people say. Right. And that's kind of what this book is, at least I think is encouraging. In, you know get involved in the material before you are someone else tells you what to think of
1: it right? Yes. Right, which is what reading is, isn't it? I hope Ultimately. Right? Well, and
2: that's what they're afraid of in the book. And they talk about how the more reading you do, the more self-discovery and the more opportunity for you to start thinking. And Clarice, in the beginning of the book, when she's still alive, talks about how they want to send her to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They don't understand her because she wants to keep asking why. Mm-hmm. And she wants to understand how things work and why they work. And she doesn't want to take it at face value. And that now somehow that's a bad thing in our society. That questioning of what's happening around us, and, and, and that connection to nature. Mm-hmm. They really talk here about how the connection to nature is really negative. Why would anyone want to go out and explore? Why would anyone want to go out into nature? And it's only when Montag, at the end of the book kind of floats down the river in Faber's clothes, so, you know, that the second hound doesn't find him, that he looks up at the stars, and for the first time in the book, we actually see him really acknowledge nature. Mm -hmm. It, It happens a little bit with Clarice, because she brings the nature to him, but up until that point, there's no reference to man's, woman's, whatever, connection with nature, which we all know we have. And I just think that that's an interesting point in the book as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just the, just the time to think. And, I, and maybe I mis- I thought, isn't there a part where they talk about, Clarice talks about the front porches. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm.
2: and, yes. And how architects went away from the front porches because people would have an opportunity to sit and talk.
1: Right. Yeah, or just think, like just the idea. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's, I mean, having been through the pandemic that was a lifesaver for me yeah we would have people over in our front yard which we hadn't done for years and Mm we just sit there and just like it's so nice to be in a room with people or be in the same space and and talk and share that yeah um which you don't get online i think we know that well from trying to teach virtually compared to in the classroom yeah there's so much value as and i'm speaking as an introvert someone to just like be in the same space with somebody
0: yeah, the I mean, even the anonymousness of, of a crowd feels so much warmer. <laughs> right, it's you so know, exciting to go to house. the grocery store. Yeah, <laughs> when I'm locked in my house, all I wanted to do is repaint some walls, <laughs> fix, fix some things around. Yes,
2: yeah. I mean, it is, it's is—it's the novel that just keeps on giving, in my, in my opinion. No, it's a great choice. And it can be, I'm it can glad be you brought Negative things or positive it. things. Again, you could go down any sort of rabbit hole, right? I mean, you could take every piece here that's negative, every image, every piece of symbolism, and you could walk away feeling very, very down. I think that that's the beauty of a novel is it's open to everyone's interpretation. And I mean, I'll be the first one. I mean, I picked up some spark notes because mm-hmm. I was like, I want to see what other people are thinking. and. I don't agree with everything that's in there. Right, I yeah. have a totally different perspective on some of the imagery and the themes in here because of my own experience. That's the beauty of a great work of fiction is not everyone should agree on what's going to happen You know, with the inferencing of what's going to happen after that novel ends. Yeah. That's the beauty of something that's well written.
1: So a theme of ours in this podcast is when you read something you encounter the first time or you pretend to read it and then read it again. What was it like for you, Melissa, like coming back to this book? Or You said you read it every couple of years, but I do. how has it changed over the course of your life in those ways that you're just speaking of?
2: So I don't know if it's that's a great question. Thank you. I don't know if it's actually changed as far as my perspective. I think that each time I read it and you may have touched on this when you were talking about Gatsby. I find a nugget that I didn't see before. Mm -hmm. I find something deeper in the material that the the last time I read it, I I didn't find as interesting or I didn't connect with as much. And that's why I think it's really underrated to reread things. And I'll often tell people, oh, yeah, like I'm, I'm reading Brave New World for the third time or. I'm not a huge fan of Russian literature in general, but I do like Dostoevsky. And mm-hmm. I do—I I love to read Crime and Punishment. That's like by far one of my favorite books mm-hmm. of all time. And each time I pick that up, it's something new and deeper. And I talk to people who are like, why would you ever want to read a book more than once? And I'm like, why wouldn't you? I just feel, and, and now there are some where I think, sure. oh, I'm never reading this again. It was right. one time and that's it. Right. But there are others where I will pick it up. I will crave that story. I will crave those characters again because I feel like I connect to them on some level. And so in this book, I, I don't know if it's I feel a connection to one of the characters, really, but I do feel a connection to what's happening. And when I look at Clarice, I see my students. When I look at Clarice, I, I see someone who is, is wanting so much for answers and wanting so right. much for the opportunity to grow and society isn't providing her with that. And I think that we as, 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 teachers are so that that's our largest responsibility is to create an environment where our students want to learn more and they're asking the questions and sometimes they're leading us to the answers. Mm-hmm. And so every time I read this book, there's just a new little piece to it that I never never noticed before
1: right yeah sure. I think that makes great literature I agree absolutely how about you Nick when you came back to it
0: it's funny I, I, I assume I read it right around when you assigned it too you know late middle school um, it, it's I just imagine I had this very frustrated woman who was our English teacher and she was the one who was like shaking like don't you see that this is supposed to be about now and you know like the multiple screens and stuff and because even back then I mean computers and TV sure um, I find the book like Bloom, you know. Think, I think like Harold Bloom a lot. Um, <laughs> I've often thought that. The, I mean, the structure of it, like the bones of it, are so much like other books I've read. Yeah, it does it's,
1: feel very familiar. Yeah.
0: yeah. It's just that the connective tissue isn't, right? Like, it doesn't go off on any screens, really. There are very few monologues. I mean, I just reread 1984. It's all monologues at a certain point. Um, but this is it's just such a unique perspective and very American. Like I, I feel like this um, very much so. And I, I do, I mean, maybe it's that I'm in the humanities with Mike here, but our job is to keep kids curious, not to force them to do the answer. Like that, that's what's nice about our fields, right? There, there isn't a lot of, and this is not to say anything against like math, but there's not interpretive math.
1: Right, not the school level. Right,
0: that's right. Our job is to give them information, and let them interpret, and challenge them, and make them think. And that—that's why I like this kind of literature because I'm the hero uh, at the end of the day. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. I—I I, and I guess to answer the ultimate question, it sounds like you would recommend us keep assigning it. I—I I, I totally think. This belongs at you know the beginning eighth ninth grade seventh grade even, because then you can give them harder stuff like We and Brave New World in 1984 and they can build on top of that. This is a fantastic foundation for dystopia, um, I would say.
2: I would say why wouldn't any school, you know, consider then the reread. So if the, first, if the first pass is, I would say, more than seventh, I would say I, I wouldn't assign it younger than eighth grade. I just don't know that they can get kind of to, maybe sure. some seventh graders could, but to the level. And there are some mature themes in it too, but I would say that, you know, you do the first go around at eighth grade, and then it's in a seminar class senior year where you just tear this thing apart. Right. And and you make sure it's it's kids that have read that before at a different place. And even if you could, you're holding on to something they've done. So they do some sort of portfolio work.
1: Yeah, that's a great idea. That's,
2: that's either Digital now, right? And it's put online, and they get to go back and revisit who they were. Right. Whether it's writing themselves a letter at the end of this, of where they are and what they thought of mm-hmm. it, and then making them reread that and provide a commentary on how they've grown and changed, or how their opinion of the book has changed, or stayed the same, mm-hmm. or
1: how the world's I, again, changed around them. Yeah. Yes,
2: I don't think we value going back to things enough, and I know that we've struggled with this at the elementary level of how much homework do we assign? How much do we cram into them to get everything done? Well, sometimes I'd like to teach less and teach it deeper. And mm. so even though someone say, well, you're just reading the same thing again. Well, yes, I am reading the same book again, but the experience because of the age and stage that I'm at is going to be completely different Sure. and maybe richer and better right. because I already have a foundation that didn't exist before.
0: Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Like, and uh, we were talking about that with G- Gatsby and mm-hmm. me catching the rye. I God, Holden Caulfield, was a pr- is like, as an adult, he's a prick. I was going to
2: say, he's a yeah. He <laughs> yeah. just needs a
1: hug. Poor guy just needs a hug. He needs a little
2: more than a hug. I think well, he needs to yeah. get stuffed in a trash can, but, <laughs> but I mean, like, he's still interesting nonetheless. <laughs> sure, but, but he's yeah, not like,
1: the anti-hero <laughs> you think he is no, when you're a he's teenager, not, yeah. He's not a rebel without anything. he's just, no, he's he's sure. just pathetic, I, yeah. I mean, it
0: would be interesting <laughs> to have our young alumni come back and just to do some of these books again. Because, I mean, Gatsby is one that I've read, and then I've read with you now, two or three times right it's it grows on you still year. evolves how right how
2: lord of the flies <laughs> i mean that yeah. is a phenomenal book to really introduce in seventh or eighth grade i know that you know some stuff happens in it but i think it's a good because of the age of the boys in the book yeah. it's a good seventh eighth grade book and again i mean you put that one right with fahrenheit 451 and you teach that again as a senior in high school and, and just pull out the layers of those, right. those relationships and what happens as they develop those relationships and then that relational aggression that takes place in the book and I, I just think that that would be another great one yeah, that yeah. you could teach. Then go re-teach. out
1: and observe ninth grade boys and just see exactly. like wait I was that way. Your homework re- home
0: <laughs> assignment is to teach eighth grade PE for one period <laughs> and just, just see if they kill
1: each other. That's right. right.
2: Exactly.
0: <laughs> oh man, that would be oh uh, that's give fun. ten uh, kids
2: eight pieces of candy and watch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh god. No, I mean Mike Carroll does Beowulf with the eighth graders, which I thought was super ambitious, but he pulls it off. But that'd be fun to have them revisit that in britlit as as a junior and go yeah, I back think to you look could at. definitely
2: do it with uh, yeah. there are you know a few books that I mean most I think most good literature we've already established should could and should be read multiple times at multiple different stages in in one's life sure but I think there are a few books that speak particularly to themes that would be interesting to young people when it's really hard for us to capture their attention today for of a lot of different reasons which is another kind of smaller theme in this book when clarice kind of talks about how everyone worries about her because she's so different and she's so this and she's so that and it's one of those things where we can't we can't capture our kids attention the way we used to and she's begging to have her attention captured that way. And I just think that there's another parallel there where we keep trying to kind of fighting to get our kids to look at the importance of this type of literature. And here's this character just dying for it and society won't even give it to her.
0: Sure. Well, and it's just who we identify with as characters anyway. Like, you know, and I think that's interesting. I mean, I told Mike this, but I read To Kill a Mockingbird uh, over Christmas break Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was a kid, it was, all, when, I, when, I was a kid, when I was in high school, I read it. It was all about Scout and the kids, you know. And then now how Atticus is thing. one of the greatest characters to, in literature. And Bradley is so scary. Mm-hmm. Right, and, you know, it,
2: and he finds out in the end he's not.
0: That's right. You know, and as a father myself, like it's just interesting to, how they write kids looking up to their father, you know. But anyway. That's
2: mm-hmm. another one that you actually could, we do it in eighth grade at Christ the King, yeah. and you could easily reteach that later on in another class, even in a history class, if you're looking at the civil rights era and having that be a jumping off point to go into that with what was happening in the South at the time, I mean, there were, um, I think there are a lot of parallels. And yeah. then you could, you, I mean, I read, Go is it Go Tell a Watchman? Which
1: Go Tell a I
2: don't know, that makes me think that Truman Capote really did write um, oh, really? <laughs> To Kill a <on> Mockingbird. <laughs> I'm not saying that for real, I'm just kidding maybe sure but uh but you could bring that in as well but i just there are so many books that are lost on young people because they're forced to read them and they're not at a point where they want to read them and when they get to go back and revisit them a second time i think that they see it through a whole new lens yeah
1: preaching yeah. to the choir
0: yeah yeah so uh, this is the announcement of the Young Alumni Book Club. And there you go. go. <laughs> no, back around.
2: I, w- um, I would come back. I'm not even an alumni, and I'm not young, but I would, I would, <laughs> I would come back and do some Fahrenheit 451 for that.
1: I think it would be fun. Very fine. cool. We'll,
2: we'll
1: we'll we'll
0: bug the alumni office. It's
1: a good yeah, idea. Yeah, we should have a require reading book club for <laughs> parents. Maybe I, that would be good. Oh, just I sort would. of extend this podcast.
2: I'd be very excited about something like that.
0: Well, Melissa, before we let you go, what are you reading? Anything
2: good? Well, I do like to go back uh, and reread things over time. But two that I'm rereading now, um, but they're non-efficient, is Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy, which is just fantastic. And Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Those 2 I'm reading kind of those two together. They're fantastic. I did go back recently and reread Donna Tartt's A Secret History. Oh, really? And and her newest one was was The Goldfinch or whatever, which I, again took a movie and just destroyed a lovely book with the movie. But um, I reread A Secret History and what was interesting is that was probably my favorite novel for a long time in the 90s. And when I went back and reread it, I did not like it at all, Interesting. And first things first, I'm not as much of a fan of the first person point of view. I prefer books written in like unlimited omniscient or whatever, not even limited omniscient. So I don't love first person. I think certain authors can pull it off. I actually, in The Goldfinch, thought it was brilliant. And I thought she did a great job. When I went back and read Secret History, I really found the, the, the narrator to be completely irritating. Interesting. I, I really did. And I was like, you know what? And I, actually,
1: uh, again. and I
2: actually put it down and picked it up several times. And I'm someone who's like, I've I got to read it. And so sure. I, I got my way through it again. But I was like, how was this? my favorite what was I novel thinking? Yeah. for the longest time. <laughs> and again, that's part of the growth as a reader. And there's nothing against the book. I'm just a You're different right. person exactly. now. And I would say another one is The Orphan Master's Son. And this is, um, so it's all about North Korea. And it's it's a writer who's actually a professor at Stanford. And he got to go to North Korea. So it's a fictional account um, of what happens in North Korea. But based on his experience there. And the first time I read it, I put it down four times. I could not get through the f- first 50 pages. It was very dense and boring and but once I got past that, it was exhilarating and I went back and read that pretty recently and flew through it. Oh wow. Again, I was in a different I was in a different place. Yeah. And so those are two things I've reread that I just really really like. The Nightingale, I've only great. read that once. Fabulous. All the light you cannot see.
1: Sure. That's a great Although, one. Although
2: the ending of that yeah. It was not as good as I would no, liked, no, yeah. but I still thought it was excellent. Um, sure. There are too many to say in a podcast. I'm sorry. My husband <laughs> well, would tell you, I have like 12. Um, I don't really do the Instagram thing, but I think one day someone asked, what are you reading? And I just took a picture of the nightstand. Right. Sure. I usually have a good 12 books there and then in the drawer yeah. and I recycle them. There will be a parenting book, a nonfiction, sure. a fiction, awesome. maybe a self-help here or there. Um, I just... If I I'm an extro, I'm an introvert extrovert or an extrovert's introvert, I love people and I love to talk and I like this. But if I had my druthers, I would live alone in a cabin and read right. for like fourteen hours a day sure. and be completely happy.
0: Well, I, I will say, Mike and I have talked about doing Mansard for meeting on the podcast. Oh. So, I mean, among any any number of others, right. but that one had come up when we were just making a list. So we'll let you know. Yeah.
2: And then you got to then you've got to pick up. Ego is the enemy. Sure, and read that as a companion. And it's a smaller book and shorter, but Ryan Holiday is excellent. He's written several really good books. That's sure. just the one that I, I happen to like the most. And if you're in any sort of leadership role, it it has to be it sure. has to be a must read.
1: Awesome, Perfect. good. like um, let's see. I just finished a book um, Margaret Gillespie gave me, a, like a Camino-related book called "Out of Istanbul." Mm-hmm. It's about about a guy who hikes um, east on the Silk Road. Cool nonfiction. Yeah. Um, it was good, and I put it down pretty quickly. We're rereading Tribe, talking about rereading Sebastian Younger's book for okay. uh, American Experiment. I'm not scratching you the same way. It's, it's just about. different, and and actually like teaching it and seeing it through the eyes of the kids. We're only about two thirds of the way through, so that's a little different. Uh, but I want to read his new book, Freedom, which just came out today, I think. Sure. Um, and then Anthony Bourdain has a new book out, um, published well. post, um, post after his death um, posthumously. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah,
0: yeah I've, I've read, I think, everything of his so far. Uh, I heard there was an a book of essays coming out. Everywhere. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I read How to Fight Anyone by Judith Young <laughs> um, My daughter discovered my Tintin comics. So I'm reading those for oh, cool. her. Um, but, you know, that's that's more fun than anything, of course. And are
2: comics underrated?
0: Oh, absolutely. I,
2: they're such a wonderful... They're, they're a great read. I love comics.
0: Yeah. I believe your daughter did a comic for our class recently, in fact. Well, Black hole. Black yes. hole. To charles burn yeah she
2: doesn't share it
0: with anything okay, with me. About it. so
2: <laughs> wonderful i'm glad she turned it into simon on time right. and
0: it was good yeah. and she they presented on it um what was i going to say oh so um the book i'm reading right now is a classic that i had never read before uh, i was going through the universal monster books and had never read invisible man so i'm reading invisible man now oh. Oh. which is hg
1: wells I'm, yeah i'm enjoying great. it i've read the ellison one too but i've just never read the you know the it's a, the wild version now
0: it's it's fun i mean i love, I love hg wells he's he's very light i mean it's a very short book and it's punchy and there's not a wasted word it's fun um but i mentioned it before i taught it in class with mike a chunk of it um i will mention pat frank's uh, *A Last babylon which is a dystopia kind of right. sorta it's a survival book uh the first 50 pages is that they know the world's going to end with a nuclear war can you prepare in time Um, And the the guy did his research. It's exactly where you would have to be in Florida to survive a nuclear attack based on where the military bases were in
2: 1953. Wow. Um, Sounds fascinating.
0: And I mean, a lot of it doesn't ring true anymore. Like, there would never be gas shortages or diseases <laughs> or <of> radiated people <laughs> trying to come in that aren't Thank properly God, protected. Than
1: that. Yeah.
0: or uh, of, or, or you know, gouging prices because there's shortages of food or paper towels and toilet paper.
2: Right, just like uh, the movie Contagion.
0: That's right, <laughs> not,
2: <laughs> the, the, not applicable
0: the, at all. Yeah, but the first 50 pages, it's like <laughs> horror, and then the, the next 100 pages is survival, and then at the end, we win the war. Not that it matters. Uh, it's, it's excellent. It's classic. Um, it's not taught as much anymore because the Cold War ended, but, you know, it used to be taught a lot more. So if you can find classic Pat Frank, uh, do. Uh, this is the second to last episode of this school year, of this season. We um, made it. So um, Mr. Burns, uh, Mike and I are trying to figure out what we're going to do over the summer. Uh, but in the meantime, I would read lots. To the, oh, well, we got the prayer, <laughs> damn it. I want to thank Melissa for being
1: on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank first, you
2: very much. Yeah. It was so enjoyable. This
1: is awesome. Please come back. Yeah. And, oh, I will. Okay, good. <laughs> Only
2: if you invite me, but I will, I'll be uh, back.
1: She's already here. We're to about the
2: book, is
0: uh, Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Nick. It was great. Uh, and I guess next week is the final
1: exam. One more. Amen. All right. Right.